ask any philosophy student which philosopher is the most challenging to understand and most difficult to read, chances are she'll say, Martin Heidegger. This is Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to The After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. Despite the difficulties inherent in reading Heidegger, as this year's Wyoming School of Catholic Thought considered issues surrounding technology, we read his 1953 essay, The Question Concerning Technology. Heidegger, who lived from 1889 to 1976, witnessed a great deal of technological change, much of it extremely harmful. What did it all mean? What do we make of it? Glenn Arbery guided the participants at the Wyoming School in a give-and-take conversation about Heidegger's essay with these words. Ted was talking yesterday in our seminar about Newton, you know, and how influential Newton had been on all subsequent thought. And I was reminded of a little couplet that Alexander Pope wrote, which goes like this, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. <laughs> I bring this up not only to refer to Newton, but also to make a disclaimer. Um, I am not uh, Newton, and you know Heidegger is, is, is something pretty difficult to get at, so I'm not sure we're going to come out of what I say with all being light. Sorry? Not light. That's right. <laughs> well, um, in any case, uh, we're going to need everybody's help on this essay, and I intend to um, not so much give a lecture as kind of take us to parts of the text and, and get into it. Um, I think if you know anything about Heidegger, you know he's a major 20th century philosopher. He was a student of phenomenology with Edmund Husserl. Uh, he took his own path, his own great work that everybody looks back to is called Being in Time, which was published in 1927, which is about the time of the film we saw, Metropolis. You know, it's interesting to think about what was going on you know, at that time. This essay comes from 1953. Uh, obviously, this is after World War II, after the deployment of the atomic bomb and the you know, rise of the uh, race between you know, the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, the, so the, you know, the backdrop has a lot to do with that post-war era when you know, science is, is sort of everything, when every um, everyone in the world is concerned one way or another about whether there'll be proliferation of nuclear war, right? So again, uh, the threat of extinction. Heidegger in this essay is pretty clearly not asking in the usual way about how we control technology or how we regulate it. He's asking something much deeper. He's asking us to think about its essence and even what he means by essence is something you know it takes a while in the essay for you for you to get into. So I want to begin um, by doing what Heidegger would surely say not to do, which is to try to inframe <laughs> the essay, to try to order it in a way so that we can see clearly, you know, what the standing reserve. And I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I do want to I want to take us toward the end of the essay to what he says at the bottom of page 12 and the top of page 13, and use this to see if we can kind of give ourselves an orientation to the 
to the basic argument uh, of the essay. And when I say, you know, uh, that we want to approach it and get it all in orderly form and, you know, take it in, um, I really am kind of pointing to what Heidegger's talking about at the very beginning of the essay about the way, you know, he, there's a way into this thinking and you have to, you follow it, you go along with it, you know, you don't necessarily abstract from it and make this point and that point, but it's like a flow. And so once you get into that flow, it's, um, you, you see the, the sort of power of his thought. But in any case, at the, at the bottom of page 12, as he's getting toward the end of what he's arguing, <clears throat> I'm just gonna read a few, a few of these short paragraphs. The essence of technology is in a lofty sense ambiguous. Such ambiguity points to the mystery of all revealing, i.e. of truth. On the one hand, in framing challenges forth into the frenziedness of ordering that blocks every view into the coming to pass of revealing and so radically endangers the relation to the essence of truth. On the other hand, in framing comes to pass for its part in the granting that lets man endure, as yet inexperienced, but perhaps more experienced in the future, that he may be the one who is needed and used for the safekeeping of the essence of truth. Thus does the rising of the saving power appear. The irresistibly, irresistibility of ordering and the restraint of the saving power draw past each other like the paths of two stars in the course of the heavens. But precisely this, their passing by, is the hidden side of their nearness. When we look into the ambiguous essence of technology, we behold the constellation, the stellar course of the mystery. Now, all this is very gnomic. You know, it feels, <laughs> um, you know, it feels very, uh, much like some kind of obscure prophecy. But I think the, um, the two things that we're looking at here, if we can do this, if we can divide it. On the one hand, there's the irresistibility of ordering. And that's, you know, everything that we're going to talk about is in framing and so on. On the other hand, there's the restraint of the saving power. Whatever the saving power turns out to be, and it has some very strong um, understanding in Heidegger's thought uh, that this is poesis. This is a, a different kind of bringing forth or revealing than, than what we see going on in technology. So if I can just kind of uh, do this. On the one side, we have in framing, which is, you know, this has to do with the essence of technology. And on the other side, we have poesis, and, and we'll kind of dig into what he means by these terms as we go. All right, um, so let's, let's go back toward the beginning of the essay. <clears throat> Excuse me, and let me try to bring out some of the major points and see where, where we get with these. In the first place, when he starts talking about technology, he talks about it as an instrument, uh, something that man uses. Uh, this is back on page one. Uh, so I'm going to skip down a little past the middle of the page. 
the current conception of technology, according to which it is a means and a human activity, can therefore be called the instrumental and anthropological definition of technology. Who would ever deny that it is correct? It is an obvious conformity with what we're envisaging when we talk about technology. Okay, um, so this is the first kind of, where did I do it? No, thank you. <laughs> the first word that, that kind of comes up for consideration is correct. What, is, what do you understand as meaning by correct? This is correct. It's correct to talk about technology as, you know, <clears throat> a means to things and as a human activity. It means it's not wrong. It's not wrong. No, it's, it's, it's not wrong. You know, it's, it's an accurate description given these terms, you know, of, of what you, it's, as he says, it's an obvious conformity with what we're envisaging. So, you know, we, we say about something this and this and this and this, and that's correct, right? right. The, those are the things that you say about this and that, right. <laughs> <coughs> yes. Okay, so as, as, he, as he gets into this correct mode at the bottom of page one, um, you know, it's, he even calls it uncannily correct that it holds for modern technology. Um, power plant with its turbines and generators is a man-made means to an end established by man. Jet aircraft, all these are means to ends, etc. Sawmill in the Black Forest, hydroelectric plant on the Rhine River, all these, all these hold. This is all correct. This is this is what we understand by technology. It's means to an end, and it's something that man does. Okay, so at the top of page two, we start kind of questioning the word correct. A correct always fixes upon something pertinent and whatever's under consideration. But in order to be correct, this fixing by no means needs to uncover the thing in question in its essence. So it's just, you know, as long as it's sort of superficially right, that you're okay, it's correct. Only at the point where such an uncovering happens does the true come to pass. So the true is, is over here. Does that seem right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the correct seems to apply over here, if, I, if I'm right. I mean, let's, let's see how this goes. You know, when he's asking about the instrumental, you know, and this, this whole correct notion of technology, he starts asking what, what we understand by instrumentality, and I guess it's, you know, causes that lead to effects, right? Use this instrument to get this effect, right? Something like that. So this gets him into causality. Now, why is causality over on the on the, the left side? <laughs> what is causality? Four causes. Four causes are material, formal, final, and efficient. Right. What's wrong with these? Anything? They're correct. 
Okay. If you think about um, cause as bringing about an effect, which of these is the preeminent cause? Very clearly, the efficient cause, right? The one who makes it, right? Um, material, okay. I mean, we're, his example is a silver chalice, right? Material, okay, you use the silver, you use the form, you know, you get the shape of it. Final cause of the chalice. Well, no, but he's the, he's the official. What's the final cause of the chalice to be used in, in a mass, maybe? Um, and then the efficient cause is the real thing, right? The silversmith, the one who makes it. Fair? Correct? <laughs> okay. So where does Heidegger go from here? All right. So instead of cause, let's say we get cause over here, or the Latin word causa. Over here we get the Greek word aition which does not mean that which brings about an effect, right? What does it mean for Heidegger? I mean, this is, I mean, he's saying, isn't he? On page two, he's saying, the way that we understood the four causes is all wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, the way the four causes go over into Latin, no, that's not really what the four causes are at all. In fact, when the Greeks thought about causality, they didn't use the word cause as that which brings about an effect, but aition, which means what? This is down. Yes. So it's silver as the material, you know, the shape of the chalice, the end of the chalice, and the um, one who brings it about are not to be thought of in terms of causes as we thought of um, in, in, the, in the ordinary way. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with bringing about and effecting. So when we're thinking about um, the Greek way of understanding these four causes, let's look at the top of page three. Silversmith, somebody wanna read this, this paragraph, the silversmith considers the silversmith considers carefully and gathers together the three aforementioned ways of being responsible and indebted. To consider carefully is the Greek legain, logos. Legain is rooted in apophonistai, to bring forth into appearance. The silversmith is co-responsible, is that from whence the sacred vessels bringing forth and subsistence take and retain their first departure. The three previously mentioned ways of being responsible owe thanks to the pondering of the silversmith for the that and the how of their coming into appearance and into play for the production of the sacrificial vessel. Okay, so what's the difference here that he's getting at? You know, on the one hand, you're using material into a certain shape and you're making the thing. And here, it's, it's like you're the, the silversmith is one of the participants in bringing this into being, right? He's more, he's more a participant in the bringing into presence of, of the chalice. Considers and gathers together, right? The, these are, this, this, this sort of mutual occasioning of the chalice. 
So what's the difference? I mean, if we have the thing before us, the chalice before us, what's the difference in seeing it in, in the terms of the four causes over here and the modes of occasioning over here? To be a sacred vessel, right? To, to contain and, and to pour out, right, the, the blood of Christ, right? So it's, it's sacred. It's got this, this dimension to it that um, comes into its fullness, you know, during, during the consecration and so on, right? This, this is uh, what, it, what it all is. And so if the silversmith is, is thinking in these terms, then he's, you know, there's just a sort of different relation to the, the object than there is if he's just kind of hammering it out. You, you follow? I mean, so it's, I think Heidegger's trying to get at a, just a more sacred relation to, to the act of, of making, which he's thinking of as bringing forth rather than just being the cause of an effect. So that this pondering somehow is, is in what the, what the chalice comes. Yeah, so I mean, you're thinking of the chalice ultimately as in act, right? Right. He, do, he doesn't just bang something together and say this is a chalice, right? Yeah. He's, I mean, it's got to be, he, he owes something to, to this final thing. If the whole understanding that you have of, um, of what you're doing in making the chalice has to do with this kind of, you know, co-responsibility of, of the silver and the, you know, the form of the chalice as you conceive it, you know, and what it's for and the person making it. Then, I mean, I, I think Heider's just trying to think, yeah, this is how we think of it right now, right over here. But there was a previous way of thinking about it, which was Greek and which was tied to this idea of poesis. And let's get to that at the bottom of the page. It is of utmost importance that we think bringing forth in its full scope and at the same time in the sense in which the Greeks thought it. Not only handicraft manufacture, not only artistic and poetical bringing into appearance and concrete imagery is a bringing forth, a poesis. Phusis also, that is, you know, the word translated as nature, right? Phusis also, the arising of something from out of itself is a bringing forth, poesis. So nature itself, you know, is understood as poesis. Thusis is indeed poesis in the highest sense. For what presences by means of phusis has the bursting open belonging to bringing forth? Uh, for example, the, e.g., the, the bursting of a blossom into bloom in itself. In contrast, what is brought forth by the artisan or the artist, e.g., the silver chalice, has the bursting open belonging to bringing forth, not in itself, but in another, in the craftsman or artist. I mean, it's interesting he uses the, you know, the blossom as the one that happens physically, that is, in nature, by, by, its, own, by its own action. And then the chalice over here is the, the sort of opening, right, that's brought about by the artisan. Bringing forth brings out of concealment into unconcealment. Bringing forth comes to pass only insofar as something concealed comes into unconcealment. This coming rests and moves freely within what we call revealing. The Greeks have the word aletheia for revealing. Okay, so over here, the true 
So what does aletheia mean? Unconcealing in the, in the root of the word is lethe, right? Yeah, coming to light, but I mean, you know, the river Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. So unforgetting, that is, this, this has been present, but forgotten in some way. So when, when something is true, it's brought out of that forgetfulness, brought from behind the veil and into, into presence. So you can see it. It's revealed. And Latin means, you know, the veil is removed to reveal. So also the word apocalypse, right? Revelation means something is brought out of being calypsoed, which means hidden or, um, you know, so when Odysseus is brought from the island of Calypso, it's like he's being brought out of forgetfulness, out of concealment, you know, back into his, back into his life. So, you know, aletheia, rather than a correct statement, means bringing something out of concealment into presence. So it's a different way of understanding, you know, it's a difference between correctness and truth. Okay, now Heidegger gets into what he wants to um, say about techne on the, the first time. Uh, techne is a mode of this revealing. Um, whoever builds a house, in the middle of the page on, on four, or a ship or forges a sacrificial chalice reveals what is to be brought forth according to the terms of the four modes of occasioning. So all this to say that technology is a mode of revealing. All right, now we get into to what modern technology is. Uh, at the bottom of four and the top of five. What's the difference? I mean, what's, what, what leads to the turn from this kind of older way of understanding the truth or of occasioning things sort of in keeping, as Adam was suggesting, with the, with the way of nature, you know, um, sort of a human participation in the, in the mode of things that nature already does? What happens with modern technology? Let's, let's go to the top of five. The revealing, oh, excuse me, the revealing that rules in modern technology is a challenging, which puts to nature the unreasonable demand that it supply energy which can be extracted and stored as such. But does this not hold true for the old windmill as well? No, its sails do indeed turn in the wind they're left entirely to the winds blowing, but the windmill does not unlock energy from the air currents in order to store it. Unlike, right, the huge contemporary, right, windmills. We were going through um, West Texas, coming back from Dallas recently. It was like a set of illustrations, you know. First, there were the oil fields, pump jacks out there, you know, nodding up and down, endlessly pouring money into somebody's account, right? Um, then we got to these, you know, vast fields of windmills and these things, you know, turn so slowly and, and yet there they are, you know, pumping energy into, I mean, just turning the wind into energy that's stored up and to be used later. And then after this, we get to vast fields where they're solar power panels. They just completely displace the, the land. 
you know, that, that you would have thought of as maybe agricultural or herding land or something. Solar panels all feeding into this central complex. It's, yeah, it's, it's turning it into a place where you supply supply stuff to be used later, right? They're, they're not left in their own natures. They're not, right, they, they aren't what they came into being as. They're, they're turned into something else and be distributed and ordered differently. You turn the wind into, into this reusable energy which can be ordered you know, at any time according to your will, right? Something like that. Well, so you take phusis or nature and you challenge it in a certain way and having done so, that allows you to find out certain things which you then can use for modern technology, right? I mean, let, we're gonna get into this a little bit further. Let's, let's go to the example of, of the Rhine. You know, um, this is pretty memorable instance um, of what he of what he's talking about that that uh, we do just you know all the time you know this, this is just what we do in, in modernity to nature okay uh, hydroelectric plant middle of the page on five is set into the current of the Rhine it sets the Rhine to supplying its hydraulic pressure which then sets the turbines turning this turning sets those machines in motion whose thrust sets going the electric current for which the long distance power station and its network of cables are set up to dispatch electricity. In the context of the interlocking, interlocking processes pertaining to the orderly disposition of electrical energy, even the Rhine itself appears to be something at our command. The hydroelectric plant is not built into the Rhine River, as was the old wooden bridge that joined bank with bank for hundreds of years. I mean, it seems like that's this old wooden bridge is over here, so to speak, right? Whereas the hydroelectric plant is over here, if you follow me. What the river is now, namely a water power supplier, derives from the essence of the power station. In order that we may even remotely consider the monstrousness that reigns here, let us ponder for a moment the contrast that is spoken by the two titles, the Rhine as dammed up into the power works and the Rhine as uttered by the artwork in Holderland's hymn by that name. But how? In no other way than as an object on call for inspection by a tourist. It will be replied, the Rhine is still a river in the landscape, still a beautiful river, right? But it almost seems to me that, that Heidegger is talking about this, you know, as, as sort of an uh, turning the things that, that are in themselves into a kind of abstraction of energy. So that it's, you know, even water, you know, storing up water, it's still water. And, and in, in his examples, it seems to be what he calls standing reserve. Um, the whole point of standing reserve is that you have it there ready, you know, when you need it. So, you know, you don't need the, for this to be the case right now. You can I mean, think of the refrigerator. I remember an essay years ago, you know, that kind of startled me. It was about, you know, all Americans have, you know, good refrigerators, have freezers, you know, have all these things. Whereas people say in Rome, you know, when I'd go there, they would go out every day and, you know, go to the market and buy fresh, whatever they were going to have that day. And they might have a tiny little refrigerator, but why do you need a refrigerator? You know, you've got a, you've got a kind of access to things on an everyday basis. 
Whereas the refrigerator is almost by nature standing reserve. You, you know, when when are you planning to make that hamburger meat? You know, <laughs> but but you're you're kind of putting everything on hold, right? You you get everything and, you, and then you put it on hold, and it's it's waiting there. Even I mean, I think Heidegger would even say, I know he would, terms like human resources. By the end of the essay, Heidegger is is pointing to what what he sees as the crucial danger, which is that we sort of forget or lose touch with the capacity to see the world in this way, in this you know poetic way at all. And he means more by by the poetic way than just you know whether poetry societies are being supported by big enough audiences or whether art is art is being you know. I mean, he, the aesthetic is, is another enemy of his, by the way. Uh, he, he hates the aesthetic simply as a, you know, because it's just kind of more standing reserve, you know, or something. Anyway, can we, can we get to the idea of enframing? Um, top of page seven, <laughs> we now name the challenging claim that gathers man thither to order the self-revealing as standing reserve Gestell in framing. So this is a, a new use of a word that is apparently fairly common in German, but he's using it in a new way. Translated as in framing. Why in framing? This is sort of the fundamental thing that even lies behind turning things to standing reserve. Sort of like, like Ted was talking about yesterday, right? You put your focus on this thing and this gets revealed in it, but everything else, Daniel was talking about this the other day, you put nature on the witness stand. You ask her these questions, but not, right, not the other questions. And now he's taking this to be a, a whole disposition of, I take it of, of modern science, of modern understanding toward the, the whole of the, of the natural world. I, I skipped something very important, and this is that this is not some what this is not something that man does. And this this is at the bottom of page six, uh, and, it, and it gets into to me the most difficult parts of this essay. Uh, second half of that longer paragraph toward the bottom of page six, the unconcealment of the unconcealed has already come to pass whenever it calls man forth into the modes of revealing allotted to him. When man in his way from within unconcealment reveals that which presences, he merely responds to the call of unconcealment even when he contradicts it. Thus, when man investigating, observing, pursues nature as an area of his own conceiving, he has already been claimed by a way of revealing that challenges him to approach nature as an object of research until even the object disappears into the objectlessness of standing reserve. It seems like we've had, we've had animations of this in Bacon, right? We had animations of it in what we read from Galileo and, and Kepler, if I'm not mistaken. That is that um, it's not that uh, Bacon and Galileo are deciding on this, they've already been claimed by a way of revealing um, that is allotted to them. I, I don't know how to talk about this, but it's as though there are, there are historical um, dispensations or something, right? And in the ancient Greek world, 
the dispensation of revealing or bringing things to light was was poesis, you know, in, in all its forms. Whereas for modernity, as we now live in it, our dispensation is to see things in this way. You know, we 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 tend toward looking at them in ways that have to do with ordering them, understanding them. At the bottom of page nine, top of page ten, it at least mentions God, where everything that presences exhibits itself in the light of a cause-effect coherence. Even God, for representational thinking, can lose all that is exalted and holy, the mysteriousness of its distance. In the light of causality, God can sink to the level of a cause of causa defensia. He then becomes even in theology the God of the philosophers. So, you know, it's all in the causality of making. You need God to have made things, but, you know, the mysterious presence of God, all those things are, are sort of lost when you think that way. Okay, um, just back to in framing. Let's say that for Heidegger, um, however we understand this, this is sort of what's given to us to be our mode of, of approaching um, nature and, and reality in the modern world. Uh, it's not something we thought up. It's not something we did, but something kind of there. It's sort of like the, the very first motions of your intellect, you know, are, are toward this kind of thing rather you remember when we were looking at that Bacon passage the other day about they're the, they're the things that light reveals and all those are great, but if you don't have sight, they mean nothing. So similarly, that way of seeing, you know, the capacity to see is more important for Bacon than all the things you make from it. So I take it that, you know, that, um, that kind of way of understanding is is what characterizes um, in framing that this is how you look at things you look at them well how how can i order this how can i understand this you know um, so everything's put into like categorizing this is where we are you know and this this is the danger that comes from this that we might lose altogether you know our sense of of things um, that, that come into being of themselves. Just one example. Um, back, uh, this is back on page six. That middle paragraph, sentence or two in. The current talk about human resources, about the supply of patients for a clinic, gives evidence of this standing reserve. The forester who measures the felled timber in the woods and who to all appearances walks the forest path, whether he knows it or not, is made subordinate to the orderability of cellulose, which for its part is challenged forth by the need for paper, which is then delivered to newspapers and illustrated magazines and so on. So in other words, you can't, you can't simply walk through a forest, I mean, if you're the forester in his example here, and see the forest, you know, see the naiads and the dryads. <laughs> But, um, you know, you're seeing it in terms of board feed or you're seeing, you know, all these things. You're seeing it as, as commodity, but, yeah, you're just kind of looking at, at the whole of it. You know, uh, when I was uh, thinking about this the other day, I, re I read at the beginning of an article 
about, this is about kind of turning everything into data. You know, uh, we're, we all talk now about things being data driven. So you have to have um, stockpiles of data. You know, AI works on data gathered up, you know, immense digital resources. I was thinking about this, this article that was talking about the first kind of survey of, of the land and the resources in Ireland back in the 1600s. And, and the Irish were, you know, upset by this. And, you know, this was early in the 1600s. Later than that same century, nobody would think anything about it. So it's as though something major had shifted. There is some question about Martin Heidegger's relationship to Christ and to the Catholic Church, though just before his death, he had a long conversation with Father Bernard Welty, who officiated at his burial in a Catholic cemetery. Regardless of what exactly his relationship with the church was, the last paragraph of the question concerning technology has a very Catholic ring to it. Quote, the closer we come to the danger, the more brightly do the ways into the saving power begin to shine, and the more questioning we become. For questioning is the piety of thought. Close quote. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.